standard issue for all women. Hello and welcome to episode 114 of the Standard Issue Podzine. I'm Mickey Noonan and at Saturday night's Kitchen Disco, I introduced my other half to the video for Cliff Richards' 1981 love letter to speakers, Wired for Sound. Yeah, that's uh, videos filmed at Milton Keynes Shopping Centre. I told him that, Hannah. Oddly, it didn't pique his interest and he still asked me after four listens, can we please listen to something else now? <laughs> <laughs> I'm Hannah Dunleavy and I've never bought a television. I'm Mickey Noonan and I've never bought a television. Have you just been gifted them as well? I bring this up because I went to see my mother at the weekend and she has bought a new television so that she can watch Netflix and things on it rather than on the laptop. And she got one that was really quite cheap from Curry's, but was a good one. And she said, would I like her old telly? And when she showed me her new telly and told me how much it was at Curry's, I thought, when I get paid, I'm just going to buy myself a telly. Wow. For the first time and not have a hand down telly. Yeah. Oh, you're leaving the fold. Well, it's been nice having you. Yeah, I spend way too much time looking at my laptop. Well, I'm excited for when I can actually come to your house and we can watch something on your new telly together. Also, I hope it does better than my old telly, which when we went to the Edinburgh Festival for three days, Joan smashed by just pushing it off the side because she was angry that I wasn't here, presumably. (laughs) Oh, Joan. Later on, I catch up with Poppy Mardle, founder of Poppy's Funerals, to find out about funerals in the time of coronavirus and lockdown and how it might have changed that particular landscape forever. I talk to fashion journalist Naomi Barling about how lockdown might change our views on whether clothes are use or ornament. And there's hot lava and an overly generous critique <laughs> of racism and policing as we watch Volcano in Dunleavy Does Disaster. Indeed. But first, why are you pissing there? And who does that faeces belong to? Hmm, it's time for the Bush Telegraph. Cue Sting. Bush Telegraph. Welcome to the Bush Telegraph. Not even a commentary by Andrew Cotter could make this race to the bottom entertaining. But we'll do our best. Remember optimism? Hmm. And by that, I mean a genuine hope for the future, not a grim acceptance of the least worst option. You know, there was a time when you could wake up excited for the day. And now, well, you may have woken up covered in shit, but fingers crossed, it might be yours. (laughs) It's not. At least some of it is Matt Hancock's as he gleefully flings (laughs) it around, tweeting the latest death statistics with a self-congratulatory only in advance of the number, as if 36 deaths are something we should all be pleased about. 36 dead, you say? Air punch? (laughs) Their families must be delighted for you, Matt. And while, even with my poor maths, I can see that 36 is a number smaller than, say, 900, this isn't strictly. We don't all clap because Craig gave him the best score he's had since week two. And also, you know... Have some fucking compassion, Hancock, you shell of a human being. Still, no time for that. Coronavirus is dead. Long live the battle for the nation's soul. And that battle turned very meaty indeed at the weekend when all Trafalgar Square needed was a fried egg and a slice of pineapple to become a slap up Britain first supper. Yep, despite Boris Johnson's statement that Britain is not a racist country, racism is everywhere. Or anti-anti-racism, as the BBC is a hair's breadth away from calling it. In fairness, though, what is the opposite of an anti-racist? No one knows, Hannah. (laughs) It turns out we can add statues of Winston Churchill to the very smallest of things that Boris Johnson thinks are worth saving. Christ. Imagine if there was a statue of Dominic Cummings in danger. Johnson would be panting and priapic. Anyway, an estimated 60,000 plus deaths due to COVID-19? He's proud of how it's been handled. George Floyd's Uh. murder in America? Silence. The President of the USA threatening martial law and encouraging gun nuts to make use of the Second Amendment? Nudge, nudge, wink, wink, shoot, shoot. Silence. Churchill's statue having to be protected even though there is no actual campaign to get it removed? An eight-tweet thread and a newspaper column. A thread and column in which Johnson showed the same distinct lack of understanding of both history and statues demonstrated by many white historians. I'll keep it quick. Statues are celebratory rather than educational and we shouldn't be celebrating slave owners. Thanks for listening. (laughs) But this obsession with Churchill's statue is even more pernicious. 
It's an attempted shift in focus from the real issue, which is the Conservatives' consistent policy failings when it comes to race. Want to know how much of a shit the current government gives about black and brown people? Well, it still hasn't published the full COVID-19 disparity report. Tellingly, 69 pages covering seven recommendations to protect black, Asian and minority ethnic communities are reported written but missing. The Windrush scandal is ongoing. Only 3% of Windrush claimants have received the promised compensation. And finally, the distasteful icing on this offensive cake. Johnson announcing via his column in The Telegraph that a government commission is to look into racial inequalities. Wait up, Mick. That sounds like quite positive icing, mate. What's your issue? Well, Johnson wants to end, and I quote, the sense of victimisation felt by black, Asian and minority ethnic people. Oh, I see. It's all their fault. Boris Johnson, I have many questions. Well, that's interesting because the latest protests posed a lot of questions for the country, some of which we've never really asked ourselves before. Mm -hmm. Like, is there ever a good time to piss on a memorial of a police officer who died thwarting a terror attack? And before you leap to the conclusion that the answer is no, you might want to consider Julia Hartley Brewer's mitigation that he was pissing next to the memorial rather than on it. Because that's, like, totally different. We should all probably have been using it as a toilet all the time anyway, right? Jesus fucking Christ. It baffles me that there's no one in her life that says to her, Julia, imagine rather than the memorial, that guy's pissing right up against something you actually care about. Yourself, for example. (laughs) Does the potential for splashback diminish the distinction between on or next to any for you? That said, she's obviously entitled to her opinion, as I am entitled to mine. And I think she'd probably not have made the distinction between on and next to if he'd been black. She is free to disagree. And I am free to agree with you. And I do. By Sunday, Twitter was awash with what I can only describe as the new hashtag not all men, as football fans objected to the description of many of the racist mob as, and I quote, football lads. Largely, I'd imagine, because they actually call themselves the Democratic Football Lads Alliance. Hmm. Are they a fair representation of the kind of person who turns up week in, week out to support their local team? I'm guessing not. But does football have a massive problem with racism? Oh shit, yes, it does. And if your gut reaction to this is to point out that it's not you, or to position yourself as the victim here, you are absolutely part of the problem. And if you're currently professing to support the Black Lives Matter movement, and I quote, working to understand their experiences, congratulations, you just got judged based entirely on the actions of another person. Maybe think about that for a moment, rather than not all football fans this shit. Absolutely. Another thing worth mentioning in our government's ongoing, sure, we're totes not racist, look over there, (laughs) is the news that, despite Boris Johnson's no-real-choice U-turn that decreed migrant health workers did not have to pay the NHS surcharge, migrant health workers are still paying the NHS surcharge. So yeah, on May the 21st, Boris Johnson said that the £400 annual fee paid by non-EU migrants to use the NHS, on top of other mountain visa costs, should be removed for health and care workers, quote, as soon as possible. And yet The Guardian reports that a poll conducted by Doctors Association UK showed 158 NHS workers reported having to continue to pay the immigration health surcharge, while just eight reporting said they did not. To be fair, I don't think this shower of shit biscuits has done anything to surprise me since they got into power. Horrify? Daily. Surprise? Not so much. No. Mickey, would you like some good news? Um, I am suspicious that you've actually found any, but I'm, I'm, uh, I'm optimistic, Hannah. Remember back in April when we spoke to Sarah Halls, Chief Executive of the Cambridge-based homeless outreach charity Winter Comfort, about the growing crisis? I do, yes. Well, there's been some good news for Cambridge at least, as a new project which had been delayed by coronavirus launches this week. Six micro-homes, each with a fitted kitchen, a living area, bathroom, separate bedroom and a washing machine, will open on donated land in Cambridge. Residents can stay for as long as they need and will receive on-site support from the homeless charity Jimmy's, which was also mentioned in that interview. The land has been donated to the project for three years and the properties have been designed to be easily relocated to another free site when those three years are up. Residents will have the choice of continuing to live in them or moving to more permanent accommodation if they are able to do so. Mark Allen, Chief Executive of Jimmy's Cambridge, said, and I quote, 
One of the main challenges facing people who are homeless is finding affordable accommodation together with the support to help deal with the causes of what led them to sleeping rough on the streets in the first place. This project offers both. Oh, that is genuinely really cracking news and I hope similar things get rolled out across the country. Yeah, Yeah. indeed. I too have some good news, Hannah. Wow. I know. Two good news stories, it's too much. (laughs) We only managed one last week. I know, right? But a massive tip of the hat to Bernadine Evaristo and Rennie Edo Lodge, who have become the first black British women to top the UK's fiction and non-fiction paperback charts. Everisto's booker-winning novel, Girl, Woman, Other, which is feckin' brilliant, went to number one in the paperback fiction chart this week, while Edo Lodge topped the paperback non-fiction chart with her 2017 book, Why I'm No Longer Talking to White People About Race, which is also feckin' brilliant and should be on the national curriculum. I learned more about the British history that really shapes our country from that book than I ever did at school. If you have not read them, please do get yourself a copy and keep them at the top spot. Agreed. More news next week. Well, you have equal pay, but, you know, they're not equal, are they? Sexism of the week. It's that time of the week where we celebrate five young men's industrious turning of their attentions to validating the female orgasm. Oh, I can almost hear you think, a well-researched but ultimately short thesis where they spoke to lots of women about orgasms and discovered we don't need male validation... No, absolutely not. They've come up with an algorithm. Oh, Jesus. According to Leader Limited, the female well-being sex tech startup with absolutely no women involved, so far there is no evidence and proof of female orgasm. And there is no reliable way to be sure if a woman has an orgasm. I repeat, there is no reliable way to be sure. Hmm. Women, do you know if you've had an orgasm? But, but like, really no? I mean, I'd have gone with, yes, yes, yes! But apparently I'm fooling myself. If a man can't validate your orgasm, did you really come? There's a a, a tree falls in a forest kind of vibe going on here. Absolutely. And my guess is they've never seen a forest. (laughs) Let's take a quick peek at the algorithm they've come up with, which measures a woman's heart rate, because it's well-accepted science that a woman's heart rate only gets faster if she's having an orgasm, which might explain why I find running so difficult and being terrified so damn sexy. (laughs) A big thanks to Stu Nugent, a brand manager for the pleasure brand Lilo, who was pitched the algorithm and shared images of the presentation on Twitter. He poses some important questions. Why is female orgasm written in a different font, like it was copied and pasted from Wikipedia, Nugent adds. (laughs) Why did they make up a statistic that 26 to 74% of women have faked an orgasm? Why are there snails on the presentation? Why, and I feel I can't stress this enough, are there snails? I mean, any study that comes out with the figure 26 to 74%, (laughs) I mean, wowzers. Hello there, listener. Jen here to ask you a little favour, if I may. If you're not doing so already, you can follow us on all of the social medias. Well, not all of them because we're old and we don't know what all of them do. But on Twitter, we are at Standard Issue UK. On Facebook, we are Standard Issue Magazine. And on Instagram, where it would be particularly helpful if you would follow us, we are at Standard Issue Podcast. Also on Twitter, you will find me at Inspiragen, Mickey at Mixter Noonan and Hannah at That Dunleavy. Ah, go on, give us a follow. Hello, I'm joined on the phone by Poppy Mardle, founder of Poppy's Funerals. Hey Poppy, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. So let's start with the practical side of things. How are funerals being run amid the restrictions imposed by coronavirus? Well, it's difficult. The government have given some good guidelines to help people understand what they can and can't do. And they've given the funeral sector some guidelines Those guidelines are kind of interpretative, um, like lots of the other guidelines that we've seen come out. Mm -hmm. So, for example, the government has not given a precise number of people that can attend a funeral. They've defined that as very close family and friends, or close family, and if there are no close family, then friends. That, That has been interpreted by crematoria and cemeteries as usually around 10. So that's what we're seeing. We're seeing funerals with usually maximum sort of 10 people, which is really difficult because for for lots of people, that in no way reflects the number of people who would like to be coming together to say goodbye and support one another. 
And that's particularly difficult for many people who have had their experiences and expectations at the end of life disrupted, you know, so that very crucial experience where you spend time with someone who's dying is is, is being disrupted in most circumstances at the moment. Certainly if you're dying in hospital, certainly if you're dying of COVID-19 in hospital, your ability to have the experience that you would like to have with the person who's dying is being disrupted. So we have supported families where they have not been able to be with or see the person who's dying. They then have not been able to see the person who died at the hospital after they died. And so when they come and spend time with the person who died with us, that's always important, but it takes on a more crucial role these days. Remembering that lots of funeral directors are not allowing people to come and spend time with someone who's died with or of COVID-19. We are allowing that and we are facilitating that with all appropriate PPE and preparations. But that means that some people aren't, aren't getting to see the person who died you know, while they die or after they die. So lots of traumatic experiences, I think, happening. Yeah, it feels like grief upon grief for mourners. Yes. And at a time, I mean, it's been really interesting for me and for my team because what drives us is the knowledge and the experience that we've had that empowering people to have the experience they want and need when someone is dying and when someone has died is a kind of crucial first step Mm -hmm. in, in grieving. People not being allowed to do the things they want and need to do is a crucial first step in trauma and strife when it comes to your grieving process. So it's painful, definitely, to watch people having to have their experiences dictated by infection control, although in many circumstances it's also the right thing to do, which is hard. When we've chatted before, obviously what Poppy's funerals do and what we're seeing across more funeral parlours and across the funeral industry, hopefully, is a much more personal bespoke arrangement and that must have just been stymied or at least very hard to implement it's really interesting isn't it because certainly when this all started that was our fear you know you think well there's all these restrictions and on top of that people are scared and when people are scared they tend not to feel creative or empowered Mm -hmm. but people are amazing and what we have seen time and time again with the families that we've supported during this time and this is for families where the death has been with or of COVID-19 and for those families where, where the death has not been anything to do with COVID-19, is people's kind of new rituals being invented kind of in the moment, you know, due to the circumstances. So, you know, you can only have 10 people at the crematorium, but we have had families who have asked people who wanted to be there but couldn't be there to kind of write something, mm-hmm. which can be read out or it can go in the coffin with the person who's died We had one family who read out the names of everyone who wanted to be there, like a kind of roll call, which I think I've seen this kind of in the papers, so it's clearly happening across across the UK and maybe across the globe. But um, we've had requests to bring the person who died to the house on the way to the funeral, and then everyone in the street comes out, you know, to kind of line the street. So we do a kind of drive-by, and everybody gets to take part in that way. And then in response to other difficulties, like... You know, the flower markets have been closed. It's getting easier now, but it has been difficult to get hold of flowers. So we've had children, like, drawing pictures of flowers to go on top of the coffin. We've had people use wool flowers. What I'm taking from it, and it's really been uplifting for me, is people need rituals. You know, they need them, and they'll have them by hook or by crook, Mm -hmm. even if they have to adjust them. and, And even if they're a shred of what they could have been, it's been really powerful for me to kind of see people do their thing, even though their thing has to be limited. Have you had people filming funerals? Yeah, we've had people filming and we've had lots of Zooming, you know, so we've had people Zooming into funerals yeah. and, and that amazing thing, you know, with technology these days, if you bring a kind of a good quality, um, like, Bluetooth speaker, there's nothing stopping people from, from singing or reading poems or, or doing eulogies through Zoom. And that was happening, interestingly, that was happening before all of this, some crematoria have had the capacity to, to live stream funerals for relatives that, you know, are in Australia or, or couldn't be there. But I think understanding the power of that and the use of that, I think, is, is changing and is going to be a kind of powerful, it's going to come out of this. You know, it's going to be something that people are more aware can be done. And we've always had people photographing funerals and filming funerals. But I think that, again, the, the importance of that has, has risen, risen to the fore. That's really interesting. It's definitely something I wanted to ask you about. It, it seems... 
it seems we have this creepy tag, I imagine. That's my, my first go-to of like filming or taking photos at a funeral, but that's just nonsense. That's just something we need to get over. But do you think what's had to happen in lockdown will have a lasting change on funerals as we go forward? I really hope so. You know, my experiences with funerals is it's just about telling people what's going on, you know? So we live in a we live in a society where we have expectations of what a funeral's going to be, and these days that expectation is often, you know, at the crematorium, 20 minutes, you know, you, you sit in the congregation and you, it kind of feels a bit like assembly and you, you don't want to cry too loud and you don't want to laugh too loud and then you come out the other side and bump into the family coming in for the next one. And what I've seen way, way before the pandemic is good quality experiences, whilst they may contain new rituals that people are not accustomed to, as long as people are guided in what's about to happen, people don't have a problem with that. So, so really powerful thing to do if you're going to have a photographer or a videographer at a funeral is just let people know beforehand you know just yeah. send an email out to say we're going to be doing this thing and it's very it'd be very weird for anyone to have a problem with it. it's it's the it's the jarring like oh i haven't had this experience before what's going on that i think confuses people one thing that's really interesting is when you have a photographer at a funeral that often frees others to start taking photos yeah and then you get these really wonderful photos from people that would certainly wouldn't have felt comfortable otherwise to get their camera phone out so i think it's about etiquette and it's about not wanting to get it wrong not wanting to offend anyone and and also being unclear in in today's times like what you know what happens at funerals and and what do i get to experience and and what should i be doing it sounds like you've seen almost a more personal approach to funerals as people have had to get inventive yeah i mean people i guess i mean this sounds a bit this sounds a bit over the top, and I'm just trying to figure out if this if it sounds a bit too revolutionary. But I think people have realised they have to fight for the things that matter. Yeah. You know, so say before this, take take a different experience, like spending time with someone who's dying. It's like it's so facilitated these days, or when it when the experience is good, it is. You know, that the hospice, for example, will absolutely expect you to want to have time with the person who's dying, and and they will be, have thought through like keeping the room quiet and giving you space and being there afterwards to support you. And and so when that experience is being denied, I think people suddenly think, oh, this is a thing I actually need to do. You know, mm-hmm. this isn't just part of the process. This is like my body, my mind, my spirit needs this. And without this, I don't know how I'm going to navigate this experience. And I think it's the same with funerals. You know, that there are some things that have just been not allowed that, that are upsetting, like, in lots of crematoria and cemeteries at the moment um, to, to kind of reduce the risk of transmission, family not being allowed to carry the coffin. And I, I just think, you know, if my dad or mum died and I was told that by whoever it is, the local authority, that I couldn't carry the coffin, I would be enraged. You yeah. know, you feel like... And, and, and I'm also feeling that, you know, hearing about couples, you know, where I, I can't quite follow it. I, I don't know if I'm right, but it feels like I've read about women needing on occasion to give birth without their partner. It's just not okay. First and foremost, it's so hard right now and everyone's doing their best and, you know, we must be cautious and we must reduce the risk of transmission. But you can't, you just can't stop someone being at their child's birth. It's so damaging. And, and we've come so far over the last 50 years and it's just like a huge step into the past. Mm-hmm. And I guess that's, that's what I'm watching quite cautiously in my sector is, you know, funeral directors had got to a point, I think, sort of 10 years ago, 20 years ago, where it was like, right, we're in charge of the funeral, you sit over there, we'll do everything, we'll tell you how this is going to run. And, and we're working really hard amongst others to to change that and to say, you know, this is your experience and we're going to support and advocate and guide you through. The foremost thing is that you come out of this feeling you did the things you needed to do and it is difficult and frustrating when, you know, some of those experiences just, you know, it's sort of computer says no in terms of it happening. But but it won't be forever. You know, it won't be forever and we'll be there waiting to fight for those rights to come back as soon as as <laughs> soon as it's possible again. Good and thank you. Have you found people have been more angry or more sad? That might just be a ridiculous question. Please feel free to tell me. You mean grieving people? Yeah. I guess one of the weird things about our job is we are standing alongside people at quite a for quite a short period of time, you know, maybe two or three weeks, sometimes less. And it's a conversation we have in the team that we're with families often during a period of, euphoria is probably too strong a word, but like, you know, we all know that feeling of like this thing has happened, we're pretty shocked, we've got a massive to-do list, 
and we can take pleasure or we can help ourselves cope by by kind of smashing through those tasks and by creating a beautiful personal ceremony that is a reflection of all of our feelings. What I'm very aware of is that once we part ways with our clients, I think the real work for them begins, you know, because that's when everybody else is going back to normal and that's when I think it can become incredibly lonely. I think it's probably right to say that we don't see all of the emotions, you know, we see the emotions that happen in that very tight window. But yes, we have seen real anger and real pain around people's feelings, I think. Well, first of all, I think, and I've and I've read this, you know, it's not just our experience, but that there's something about experiencing a death during this time that can sometimes make you feel like you're just a number or you're just a statistic. Yeah, totally. You know, mm, I get that. There's, there's a lot of death and it's so critical when someone dies and it's so critical when someone's born, you know, that the people involved feel special and feel like their experience is at the centre of a community's consciousness, I think. Yeah. If, you know, if you think about what a funeral is for, it's, a, it's an opportunity for people to gather to say goodbye, but it's also a kind of first step in the community seeing the job, the work that needs to be done to support this person or this family or this group. And I wonder if that gathering doesn't happen, are there offers of support less forthcoming? You know, you, you weren't there, you didn't really see how it all went, you didn't see the emotional state of the people who were grieving, so you don't really know whether you should be offering to help with something or, or giving them a call. You know, I, I, wonder, I wonder about that, and, and I certainly think people who are grieving, you know, there is a, there's obviously an intense loneliness about this time you know you need to be hugged and lots of people grieve and want solitude but the point about solitude is you get to decide when it finishes yes yeah and i think obviously there are there are reports of sixty-eight thousand excess deaths as we speak which must mean you've been a lot busier are you okay that must take its toll <laughs> as well <laughs> that's so lovely thank you for asking me that question that's really touched me we have been incredibly busy and we've also been incredibly busy like everyone else with a team that's kind of now massively dispersed, you know, mm -hmm. so we we have moved some of our face-to-face -face work remotely okay. now. So all of our meetings with the clients are remote. We're having as many people as possible work from home. So, yeah, that, that first few weeks, I guess, in March, which was just like logistical headache, you know, how are we going to do this? What if the team gets sick? How busy are we going to get? One of the really great things for us is we didn't do this for capacity reasons, but a couple of years ago, we just started to take our well-being much more seriously. We had had some experiences of burnout in the team, and we were also, you know, also a new business, so that's just inherently a kind of exhausting experience. Mm -hmm. So a couple of years ago, we started doing some things. So we, first of all, we just hired a bunch of people. So we just decided that we were going to be over-resourced for when the busy times came, rather than under-resourced, so that we were busy and then every now and then chaotic. Yeah. We started doing supervision with a local psychotherapist. We go in groups every three months for an hour and a half, I think, to talk about the impact of our work and learn tools for looking after ourselves and for each other. And we have, for the last couple of years, really been working on caring for each other in the team, whether that be through having fun together or getting to know each other better or, or trying to create a culture where we talk about our mental health and we talk about our emotional health yeah. as much as we talk about anything else. So it feels like that has really shown its use yeah. over the last few months. <laughs> I mean, I think looking after our mental health is an important job that we all have to do, but particularly when part of your role is being there for other people's mental health when they're having a difficult time, it just seems vital that you take care of yourself. Yeah, you do not want to be you know, trying to care for someone else when you are not feeling like your feet are on the ground, for sure. Yeah. Poppy, where can people find out more about Poppy's Funerals, please? So you should come and have a look at our website. So that's Poppy's Funerals, Poppy's like YS rather than IES, and poppysfunerals.co.uk. We've just launched an excellent new blog called Talking Death on the website, which aims to bring kind of informative, objective information from the front lines of death and dying. And there's lots of information there about COVID-19 and, and how to have meaningful experiences despite all the restrictions. We're on social media at Poppy's Funerals. And yeah, there's lots of exciting things going on. We've just started doing these really quite fun Facebook Live mortuary tours, which have been really popular. So look out for those. They're a real highlight. Amazing. I, I'm, I'm going to go and check one out after we get off the phone. Thank you so, so much for chatting to me. Thank you for having me. Hello. 
Hannah here. The shops are open in Cambridge. The queue for Primark is round the block. And I am joined by fashion journalist and editor-at-large of Mission Magazine, Naomi Barling. Hello, Naomi. Hi. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. Great to talk to you. How's 2020 been treating you so far? It's been an interesting one, as it has been for everybody. There's been quite a lot of transition for myself personally in terms of leaving a full-time job, going back to freelance work, um, joining Mission Magazine, which is very exciting, and starting my own company. So it's been a busy year in the chaos of a pandemic. Yeah. And you've met me. Fashion is not my forte. I think everybody knows this. I look at clothes as kind of functional rather than ornament. And what I've noticed during lockdown with the removal of the public gaze on people, is a lot of people have started to come round to my way of thinking. I'm interested in how you personally have been dressing and looking at fashion during this period, but also I'm interested (laughs) in, obviously, you're not psychic, and this is unprecedented, so who knows where things may go. But do you feel some of that may carry into the real world? Yeah. I think it's been a really interesting time for, I think, a lot of people... It's forced the fashion industry, as with a lot of industries, to press pause and to really think about the meaning of what they're doing, their kind of importance within the world. And I think with fashion, it's an interesting one because obviously for centuries, people have been adorning themselves. People have been getting dressed up for ceremonies and just going out and enjoying themselves. So I think there is two elements to what's been going on in lockdown some people have been stripping back completely and wearing loungewear and you've seen a huge push on that from the PR marketing front kind of how to be comfortable in the house or how to dress in zoom meetings and I think it's been quite interesting to see how some people have been using clothes to still feel very connected to the outside world making a point to get up get dressed put their makeup on I've dabbled a little bit in TikTok while I've been in (laughs) very um me but just to see what's going on on there because I thought it's quite interesting to understand just TikTok within its kind of social standing at the moment and a lot of younger generations you see on TikTok have really been still dressing up, putting their makeup on. And this seems to be their way of still staying connected to some sort of outside world, to to normality that they knew. I think it's been quite a scary time for a lot of people. So people have used clothing, makeup in that way, maybe skincare routines to create some sort of normal. I would say in terms of being able to strip back, I obviously get dressed up and work in the fashion industry and present myself in a certain way to the outside world. And I see that as part of my job, even though I have always been very experimental in what I've worn. I remember my parents, when I was a teenager, kind of always rolling their eyes in support of everything that I was wearing. But I think... I find it quite therapeutic to really strip back in this time to wear really comfortable clothes, not have to put anything on, not have to think about any of that. Just be able to focus on other things that I've maybe not had time to focus on when I was out in the industry before lockdown. Things for me like skincare routines, for example, are something that I've continued really strictly throughout lockdown because that's something for me that makes me feel like I'm taking care of myself, cooking well, eating well, trying to make sure I get up at some sort of regular time and do fitness and, and fit a bit of yoga in and meditation. Those are the things for me that have kept me grounded. So being able to strip back thinking about what I'm wearing has been a very nice release. But I think clothes are really important to who we are and how we present ourselves to the world. And I don't think that's ever going to change. I think it's something that's been around for so long. And I think it's a really amazing thing that people get dressed up and they feel more themselves in what they're choosing to wear. Yeah, that's really interesting because I think that there is, like you say, there is, in in this time, we've scrambled to find some sort of ability to stay on top of it. And by that, I mean up here in in our heads. And actually, like you say, the, the psychological act of getting dressed is actually quite powerful in itself. It means that you're ready for the day, even though your day might well be just sitting on your sofa 
and working and not speaking to another person and not seeing another person. It it fulfills a bigger role than literally just covering your body up, which... Yeah, and I think a lot of people use fashion as an armour, you know, as a way to leave the house and make a statement to the world of who you are, what you're there to do. And I think all of us do that and just the way society functions, there's something very therapeutic about being able to take that armour off and just be yourself in your space, which I think is is very important. And it's kind of getting that balance of understanding the joy of getting dressed and why you're doing it and who you're doing it for, especially as women, who are you getting dressed for? And that kind of playing off. And I think in that this time, it's been an interesting time for people to think about what clothes mean to them. We kind of tie memories up in clothes mm. and outfits. And you remember things and you hold on to things that have, from people that have passed away. And clothing plays a very important part in people's lives. And I think it's getting that balance of it being a very important part of, of who you are and being able to express who you are, but also realising it's kind of all or nothing at yeah. the same time. It's interesting you say that about, about memories and being attached to clothes, because I'm there's a certain amount of clothes. I mean, I never throw any clothes away at all. Like, you know, if I don't want them anymore, I take them to a charity shop or give them to somebody. Oh. But clothes that I can't bear to separate, be separated from end up in this pile that I, I, I basically, the only function they can have now is clothes that I sleep in. And yeah. they are exactly the clothes I've been wearing around the house. So Oddly, I've been like wandering around the house in t-shirts I haven't worn for perhaps 25 years. There is, of course, the other option that we're, we're going to come out of this like the 1920s, just absolutely roaring out of our houses and all wearing catsuits to the pub. At the moment, we're yeah. in this sort of middle ground, aren't we? Things are open, but there's nowhere to go out. You know, we're not going to be in clubs. We're not going to be in pubs for a while. Do you think that we, we do have the potential to go big on fashion now? I think actually... The fashion industry, from from my perspective, from working in it, was kind of in a real turning point before lockdown anyway, where people were really starting to question the workings of the industry and how we move forward. And I think, obviously, the kind of trickle-down effect of what happens in high fashion in the industry trickles down to the high street and then obviously trickles down into kind of the general population and I do think that people were really starting to think about where their clothes were from who made their clothes and I think I hope that people come out of this time having a slightly healthier relationship buying Mm. new material goods and I hope that we rush out and it's more about the human connection that we've been missing in lockdown rather than necessarily what we've been wearing. I think I'm definitely going to enjoy going back out and dressing up and putting on my suits and my my outfits and I don't ever really leave the house without earrings, layered jewellery that I never take off that I've kind of collected over the years and they all have really sentimental value. I wear rings on every finger. So when I leave the house, that is something that's me yeah. outside in the world. And I don't think that's going to change. And I definitely look forward to being able to do that. But I do have a different feeling towards the importance of doing that because of obviously everything that's happened in the world. I think we're going to have a different relationship with that because we see what's really important. What people have been missing, I think even though people have said they're missing going to the shops and they're missing buying and online sales have gone up hugely people really are missing human connection. People are really missing just being able to go for a drink yeah. with a friend, go to a restaurant. And I think that's what a lot of people will be craving when they come out. And then getting dressed up and feeling good will will kind of come secondary, I think, yeah. to being people that you miss, that you love. And for a lot of people, shopping is actually a hobby, regardless of whether or not <laughs> you actually buy anything. My mum, for example, yeah. loves shopping. Just absolutely exactly. loves it, even if she comes back with nothing. She just enjoys mm-hmm. having a poke around shops. Exactly. And for me, even though I work in the industry, I really don't enjoy shopping. And I haven't enjoyed shopping I hate really <laughs> since my teenage years. I do, though, really enjoy antiquing and going to vintage shops and trawling through yeah. things and trying to do little bits of magic. And I would say that about 90% of my wardrobe is vintage. And that's because I'm just, I enjoy 
finding things that I can make my own and that kind of add to my story. That's a treasure hunt, isn't it? That's not shopping. Exactly. It's going to be a difficult time as well, I think, when we come come out of lockdown. And I think people aren't necessarily going to have the funds to be yeah. able to shop in the way that they were they were before. Absolutely. So, now, we're talking good. about what's going on now. It would be impossible not to talk about the Black Lives Matters movement. It feels like change is possible now, and I really do hope it does. So what I'm interested in asking you is, what does fashion need to do to ensure equality of opportunity for everybody? Well, it's such a layered topic this at the moment. I think fashion kind of occupies a very unique place in the zeitgeist, and it, it really does have an ability to shift people's mindsets and create new norms. So I think the fashion industry has a lot to do to move forward into being a fully inclusive environment for people to work in. And the reality is that fashion brands, publications, PR companies, they need to just be hiring people from different ethnic backgrounds. And that's the reality. Until we have enough people from different walks of life at that table when decisions are being made, it's going to be impossible for the industry to move forward. And it's going to be impossible for effort in moving forward to not be seen as slightly frivolous because a lot of brands have come out on social media in support of Black Lives Matter, which is really important, but it's what happens afterwards. Yeah. And what, it's what happens behind closed doors and to how we move forward. I think that European beauty standards have been the norm in the fashion industry for generations and that's kind of part of a much wider social problem and so I think for us to be able to change that narrative authentically we need to look at our hiring practices that we need to take real care when HR are giving complaints so that staff can be educated and steps can be implemented so that people are better educated in the workplace at how to work around a more diverse workforce because I think some people you know don't have experience in working with lots of people from lots of different cultures so it's also about education and also changing the entry level fashion is notoriously a very hard industry to get Mm. into like a lot of the creative industries, people expect to intern for free for a very long time. The junior jobs are very low paid. There are grants and sports systems out there, but few and far between. And obviously that can't go to everybody. So it's changing pay structures and it's changing internships into apprenticeships, perhaps, so that people can come in that are talented, that are from different upbringings and they all have the opportunity to be part of the industry. And it's not just left to people that have money and that can stay in the industry for a really long time. Yeah. I think fashion also seems to have the issue or the problem of cultural appropriation, um, Mm -hmm. which, for example, a Japanese styling of clothing or, you know, African colours in their clothes and not backing that up by supporting those communities, then that's a real problem, isn't it? Yeah, and I think designers for generations have kind of sought inspiration from cultures that are beyond their cultural heritage. And I think, sadly, the outcome can often be misguided and offensive, even if it's not meant to be, just for the pure fact that it's not coming from an authentic place of having these people in the industry and accepting and acknowledging where your inspiration has come from. Mm. Once we start accepting where our inspirations come from and being more transparent with that, then we can kind of do the hard work we need to do to move forward. I think a lot of people in the industry are, are really ready for change. Like a lot of the structures in society, it's very ingrained, even in the fashion industry. So it's going to take some time, but there are so many great people kind of really pushing for change that I think if you you just need to look at British Vogue to see that change is coming even though it is slow but like every industry we we have a lot of work to do. Now can I ask you about Mission Magazine because you write about fashion I would say in a Mm -hmm. different way than I've seen fashion written 
about before. So it seems like you are part of that change. What are you hoping to achieve? Mission Magazine is the first philanthropic fashion magazine out there. And it was founded by an absolutely brilliant lady called Karina. And the purpose of the magazine is to use fashion and beauty for good to really highlight issues going on within culture that need to be spoken about, youth and um, gender and sustainability. So Mission for me was the perfect platform to get involved in and support, not just because I feel like my moral compass aligns with theirs and what they're trying to do and the change they're trying to make in the industry, but really it was a place where I could write authentically and I could write from the heart and I could write with truth. And Karina really pushes for everybody involved in the magazine to always write with transparency and truth. So whether I'm writing or doing visuals, it's a space where they're really trying to change the narrative of what fashion means and entwine it with culture and and real stories so that we can all start seeing things for as they are really so we're coming up with the next issue it will be the digital issue first and then followed by a print issue once everything's back up and running what they're trying to do is is really great in terms of changing the narrative of what it means to be a fashion magazine yeah I have to say from from what I've read of your writing it certainly comes from a from a feminist perspective and I think there is yeah. No, no, absolutely. That's what fashion has been crying out for for a long time is is people writing about it with within a framework of it not being about making women feel bad about themselves, but instead making women feel good about themselves. So well done yeah. for that. Thank you. I mean, I've worked in the industry now for 10 years. I started interning at 17. I'm now, 20, well, 28. So yeah, 10, 11 years. And I've kind of gone from intern to assistant to fashion editor and being freelance and being full time, worked at small magazines, worked at big publications. And I think it just became really important to me to empower women and to use my my platform to make sure that any imagery I'm putting out, any writing that I'm putting out, I am really empowering women. I'm I'm mixed heritage myself so helping to support that cause has always been something that's very close to my heart I was dyslexic at school and definitely struggled with attention which is probably why I went down the artistic route so to be able to kind of find your place within these structures like everybody finding their place can be a tricky one to navigate at times um I developed vitiligo in my late 20s so it's now fully all over my hands and I think that really changed the way that I saw myself and saw my place within an industry that could really affect how people felt about themselves so it became even more important as I became an editor to use that voice to help empower women because we are all feminists but within the industry, you can't really talk about feminism without also talking about the fact that the majority of workers that make our clothes are female and they are very underpaid in faraway lands that people don't talk about. So it's it's making mission as a sort of platform where you can talk about feminism and you can talk about that scope that we may be feminists sitting in London, working at a computer in a coffee shop, writing an article, but you have to acknowledge all the layers of what it means to be a feminist because obviously I want to see equality for the women working in the factories creating fashion so it's I think it's really critical that within fashion we have these publications and these platforms where you can have a very layered dialogue about what it means to be feminist or what black lives matter mean or it's I think it's very important especially to help a younger generation start to be able to see themselves start to be able to maybe have a healthier relationship with fashion and beauty and to try and change the concept we have at the moment of self-actualizing by buying new things you know we need to stop doing that and use clothing as a way to 
adds a little bit of magic to our life, but not to define who we are. Where can people find out more? Where are you on the internet? So about Mission, they can go to Mission Mag. Just type that in and you'll be able to get features that go up weekly. For me, people can find me on Instagram or through my website at naomibarling.com. Um, and I try and keep that as updated as you can with yeah. all the writing I'm doing and any styling and art directing work that I'm doing. I am mainly Instagram and, and my website. You're not on Twitter, which feels like a wise choice at the moment. <laughs> it's I'm a horrible place. Twitter. I've never got, you know, never got into Twitter. Naomi, this has been absolutely brilliant. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you for having me and take care and stay well. Hopefully we'll we'll all be out in the sun again soon. Hello, Jen here. I'm currently on maternity leave, but I recorded a shit ton of interviews before I went off for you to enjoy over the next couple of months. So coming up, there will be interviews with broadcaster and author Ashley Dotty Charles about her new book Outraged. I also caught up with Professor Linda Scott, author of the new book The Double X Economy, as well as Bryony Gordon, she of journalism best-selling author and indeed mental health campaigner fame, and superstar athletes Joe Pavey and Asha Phillip. So all of that is coming up on the Standard Issue podcast over the next couple of months because I know you're going to miss me and look forward to being back on the podcast in a little while. Welcome to Dunleavy Does Disaster. Dunleavy, what disaster did we watch where an extra is literally reading the book Screenwriting Made Easy? <laughs> we watched 1997's Volcano, which I initially thought, oh, I'm quite enjoying this. And then I realised I was quite enjoying it because it seemed less full of peril than just the world does currently. It was like I was watching Volcano for a bit of light relief. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I was like, wow, wouldn't it be nice if all we had to worry about was just some really slow-moving lava? Absolutely that. I mean, I didn't enjoy it all the way through, but there we have it. Yeah, 1997, it came out at the same time as Dante's Peak, which we've already watched. And we've already discussed how that sometimes happens. People appear to have the same idea at the same time. Deep Impact, Armageddon, another example of that. This one is directed by Mick Jackson, who I don't know who that is, and has a cast that's headed by Tommy Lee Jones. There's also Anne Hesch, Don Cheadle, and about a million people who have been in things that I have watched. Mickey and I watched this together, and we sent a selection of messages to each other that went, Charlie Utter, Bunny yeah. Colvin, <laughs> Jackie April." This film starts with a job description. Who doesn't like a film that starts with a job description? <laughs> um, I don't know um, about you, but I sent my CV in. Was that, was that what they wanted us to do? <laughs> um, it starts off, it's quite mad. There's a lot going on. There's roller skates, there's radio reports, there's bubbling lava. There's somebody shouting, nuke the whole city. <laughs> There's a protest group called STOP, the worst acronym ever. It's STOP stands for Sensible Transit Only Please. Well, it's I mean I could have I could have stopped watching there. That's that that that's peak there. Tommy Lee Jones is the guy who does the job description. Basically in exactly the same position that Piers Brosden is in in Dante's Peak. As in, he's supposed to be on holiday, but he's the kind of guy who just can't take a day off. Uh-huh. So the minute he says he's on holiday, we realise it's all going to go downhill from there. And it does. And a couple of shots of bubbling lava later. And there's Tommy Lee Jones trying to hold back lava with a door. I mean, <laughs> what an image. <laughs> Well, they're in that tunnel first and he runs and he slams the door and it bursts open a bit and he pushes it back. That's not how lava works. I'm sorry, Hannah, to point out that you're wrong here, but it's not lava at that point. It's just a gas. It's the sulfuric gas rather than actual lava. Oh, so gas can be held back. Yeah. You not see I mean, through a door. Your, like, point, yeah, okay. your point still stands, but... Uh, Check out Dr. <laughs> Mickey. Yeah, I've got a PhD in bullshit. Yeah, <laughs> there's a lot of world building going on, including there's a new building. There's always a new building in these in disaster films. We've learnt now there's always a new building. 
This one is something to do with the guy who's from Sex and the City, whose name I don't know. John He's Corbett. Aiden. Yeah. John, John Corbett. Corbett in, yeah. in John real Corbett. Life. A great example of a character in which you're like, is that a terrible character or is that bad acting? Oh, it's both. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we also get Anne Hesh, who early on something happens to her. Her and a friend are digging around underground and wearing what looks like foil blankets. Yeah, basically. Her friend falls down a hole. She does virtually nothing to attempt to save her. She doesn't. <laughs> she just sort of reaches her hand out really half-heartedly while her friend is straining up, and then she doesn't really do much, and then she falls in the ground, and then it becomes obvious that this is actually a volcano underneath Los Angeles, which is about to shoot its load. I don't know how you say it, but there it's we go. It's a sexy volcano. And yeah, it's as disaster films go. It's okay. It's pretty by the book. It has some commentary on race relations in America, which I think seems wildly inappropriate at any time, but especially inappropriate now. And we will get onto that later. But I'd first like to know what the pair of you made from it. Oh, wow. Okay. Reynolds, come so on. Shoot your I... load. <laughs> okay. Big volcano energy coming at you. So. I enjoyed this, I think because it was a massive ball of hot nonsense. And I I totally agree with you. I think because it was so ridiculous, it was actually quite heartwarming in some respects. Not just because of the lava. Tommy Lee Jones has always been somebody that I've never really kind of warmed to as an actor. Oh, I love him. Oh, I love him. Well, I actually quite liked him in this, but all he does really is just shout on a telephone. But I, was, I, I quite like that. He just shouts on telephones, on radios. And he even though he works for, is it the OEM? Was it the emergencies, like, maintenance team or something? He's, like, the head of it. He actually mm. says to Anne Hesh at one point, what's that? And she says, oh, it can only be described as lava. And he keeps having to ask what a volcano and lava is. Now, I'm sorry, <laughs> everybody knows that. You, you learn that at primary school, don't you? What a volcano is, what lava is, and he has no idea. So I don't buy that at all. And did you notice right at the beginning, you know the guy that I think is meant to be like a journalist or a broadcaster who's in his car, is kind of shouting, narrating what's happening live, but then he keeps saying, oh, there's somebody stuck in his car there, but he doesn't do anything to help. And he then he's... Do no. to help them. Yeah, he, he also he also benefits see. from the fact that lava only moves lengthways in this and not at all widthways. <laughs> it occasionally yeah. goes up, si- Hannah. Come on, you get situations where people are able to stand next to it and watch it flow along <laughs> yeah. past them, and that happens a lot in this. And it moves so slowly. Where Tommy Lee Jones has got his daughter in the car and he leaves her and it, it, because there's been uh, a, a fire engine has crashed and he's decided to go and save the people in it first he does that thing where he parks fucking miles away from it rather than right next to it which is what you would do and he leaves her in the car and says you know honk the horn love if you need me and then the car slowly gets surrounded by lava and he has to go and save her and jump over the lava and then she just manages to stand just there next to it and the lava never comes any closer to her <laughs> than it has been because it only moves lengthways it doesn't move widthways maybe we all kind of liked it a little bit although like you Hannah I started off really enjoying it and then my interest massively dwindled but maybe it's that sort of slightly controllable peril that feels mm. feels like something we could all get on board with at the moment Instead of just chaos. I agree with that. And and it also, it's it's quite funny in parts. Not intentionally, but funny enough that it makes you go, huh, rather than, like, the full-on swarm funny. Oh, but there's swarm. a bit at the end where they decide to bring that building down and then they, they're, they're frantically cutting to lots of different places and they just cut to Tommy Lee Jones and he's just got one of those pneumatic drills. <laughs> And he's just <laughs> frantically digging. But my favourite thing about that is he literally, like, you see the pneumatic drill and then he just runs up to it and starts digging. Yeah. <laughs> he just runs out of nowhere <laughs> and starts drilling. <laughs> it's just it's just ridiculous and it amused oh, me a lot. There's also, as Mickey sent me uh, a message about, there's also what attempts to be some sort of commentary on the art of Hieronymus Bosch, which is <laughs> just... 
chef's kiss. The whole thing about the Doctor, which is like this whole other world. I mean, obviously, it's good to have a character that's a woman and it's doing good and is a Doctor. But the whole thing on that seems to be based on the fact that her boyfriend is a dick and he wants her to stop caring about being a Doctor and come home now. You've done enough. I don't want my wife treating gunshot wounds. I want her looking after tennis elbow. Fuck you, mate. Go away. Yeah, I mean, if it's taken a disaster to make you realise that that guy's a prick, you weren't paying attention sooner, I would imagine. Yeah. But his acting and his delivery in that is appalling. It's just, and I don't know how he went on to get work after that, John Corbett. That is just really, really, really bad acting. He is given very little to do, and he does very little with it. Yeah, but the thing that really bothers me throughout this is the self-congratulatory attitude towards race politics that it has. And this starts off... I mean, to be fair, it's diverse. There are actually a lot of people of varying ethnicities in it. So round of applause for that. But it has this weird plot line in which... A guy comes up to talk to the police to ask if they're going to do anything to help people in his community. He is black. And the policeman is basically tells him to fuck off. So he calls him Mark Furman, which is <laughs> used as a joke in this, that he calls him Mark Furman. It was delivered by a person of colour, but nonetheless, I don't think that joke was written by a person of colour. I, I perfectly happy for Chris Rock to be calling people Mark Furman, but it seemed like a white person joke to be making about white people. Yeah. If you don't know this, Mark Furman is the guy who was the first on the scene in the Nicole Brown murder and in the O.J. Simpson trial, Johnny Cochran was able to kind of get rid of the glove evidence by suggesting that Mark Furman had planted it because he had a history of racism, which was proved. So that's who he is. What happens is the black guy decides to start helping the policeman because that's the best thing to do for everybody. And then later on, he basically says thank you and people say thank you to him and the guy that he's had the problem with doesn't really say thank you. And another policeman says to the white policeman who's he's been racist, he says, you're a good man <laughs> to him. And he's not. So I have a huge problem with that. Skip forward to the end when Keith David, who, if anybody doesn't know who Keith David is, he is an African-American actor who is famous for his voice work. He does the commentary on Ken Burns documentaries. He picks up a small white child. They've collapsed a building to stop the lava flow. He picks up a small white child. Everybody's covered in that kind of caked stuff on their face that happened after September the 11th of like lava and like building detritus and all of that and the little white child looks around at everyone and says we're all the same colour now and says everyone he, looks the same everyone looks the same which essentially is we're all the same colour now to be fair but uh, you're right he says everyone looks the same and I just wanted to vomit with the <laughs> self congratulatory yeah. white liberal bullshit that had existed in this film Yes. Real sentimental crap. And also, straight after he says that, it starts to rain. So then you can see that people are black and people are white. And then it's business as usual. So <laughs> yeah. it seems yeah. a bit of a pointless pointless moment. But yeah, that made me feel a little bit sick. It's, it was also too too much. It was liberal America slapping itself on the back for casting black people in a film, is what that felt like, rather than actually wondering why... LA has an ongoing problem between its police and its black communities. Made just five years after the LA, uh, I don't want to call it race riots, after the LA riots. I don't think I've scored very well on the sheets. No. I've got six this week. I have four. Wow, we just keep getting the same week on week. But I mean, I it sounds like Lucy has absolutely slapped us around the face with this one. I think Lucy's putting in the, the legwork to get herself another Brexit analogy. I can feel one coming. It's coming, it's coming, Go baby. on then. Let's so start I'll that. start with that. So Brexit analogy, because there is lots of shouting, especially white <laughs> men shouting, and basically the world is on fire. So that's all right, isn't it? That works. That'll do me. I also got so many helicopters, because yep. there is. I got Can You Smell Burning? Perfect. <laughs> uh, <laughs> in fact, there was a bit that I really liked quite close to the end. You know where they put the camera down the storm 
drain because everybody thinks it's over and they see the lava and it comes and yeah. there's the big explosion i don't know whether you saw then tommy lee jones goes and puts his hand over the hole and then he's like oh hot hot i'm like <laughs> hey, you missed the hole this is film um anyway um i got this well this one probably you could argue with this disaster saved our relationship the cop and the black guy but it doesn't at all really it's just meant to yeah maybe hollywood hollywood thinks hollywood. it saved their hollywood. relationship yeah. but um events happening right now would suggest that no no, no <laughs> yeah, relationship was that they were premature yeah. in that decision yeah mm. there's no time to explain lots of that lots oh of yeah that. yeah and one that i made up when i first did this amazing prolonged sense of grip you know where they're going being lifted by the crane over the lava bullshit yeah. that you could hang on for that long bullshit well that's one of the ones on my list Oh, oh, that's that's go. usually how Hannah would die in a film. Is that she's just not got upper body strength. <laughs> Me yeah, too. I have I have a square on mine that says "thing you can't do," meaning you would definitely die in this film. And seventy five percent of it has involved hanging off stuff. Yeah, I would yeah. say absolutely. Yeah. So yeah, there's my six. I don't know whether you uh, you agree. Yeah, I think you can. I would say five because I don't know that I agreed that it saved their relationship. But I would say that I have written down here that if you still have a spare gap, uh, a new building is a definite good one oh, yes. for those. Yeah, yeah. Because all disaster films have a new building. Do you know, oddly, there isn't a Cassandra being ignored in this. I think that's the first time I've not ticked that box. I have. Thing you can't do, meaning you would definitely die in this film. Well, it's it's hang off that thing, obviously, as I've said. I also want to point out that stuff where John Carroll Lynch basically jumps into lava to throw someone free of it. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Um, oh, I, just, uh, I, I just texted, no, Tana. I couldn't be lobbed. I couldn't be lobbed that far, <laughs> so I'd have died in the fire with him. So many traffic jams. My eyes, the CGI, and it's always the lava. There were some particularly terrible shots of lava in this and the last one is local radio reports of which there were many at the start mickey agreed with all of those pep survives carnage so max their dog makes it but there's also a whole scene a whole scene of a dog not wanting to leave the house without his doggy bone but then he makes it out through the doggy flap and uh yeah i'm sure all the dogs in the audience were very relieved um, but I have to find my son slash daughter. There's a lot. Of th- there's some excellent slow motion running from Tommy Lee Jones. Absolutely lovely. Oh, stuff. Uh, there is just brilliant slow mo, and there's also lots of slow mo when John Carroll Lynch is carrying that guy through yeah. the thing. Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's wonderful work. The slow mo stuff. Nature, you cruel mistress, and farewell, major landmark. Goodbye, the tar pits, and a lot of LA. To be honest with you. So they're my four, but I would always like to point out where are the fucking women to applaud this film because actually the women have quite a lot to do. Two of the experts are women and they actually get listened to, which is incredible work. Mm. His daughter has quite a nice storyline and the doctor, the main doctor, is a woman as well. So I thought it did quite well on the woman front. Yeah, agreed. Yeah. So, Lucy, you are victorious again. Oh, yes. Um, Feels great. I'm reluctant to let you choose again <laughs> since it went so well last time, but go on then. Well, I was going to say, I definitely don't trust myself. Standard Issue for All Women.